Good morning, Boker Tov. It's very good to be together on this special Zion Adar. Today is the seventh day of Adar, both the birthday and the year site of Moshe Rabbeinu, a day that we recognize and honor the Hebra Kadisha. Zion Adar, I know some of you are looking at me, Adar Rishon, Adar Sheni, is it the first Adar, is it the second Adar, will the real Adar please stand up? We actually spoke about that a little bit last week with a uh, lunch and lunch here that we gave about about Kaparas Pasha and the institution of Rosh Chodesh. So there's different minhagim, there are different customs. Mishnabur sounds like one proper to observe Adar, uh, Zion Adar, and honor the Chavar Kaddish, the first Adar. And uh, for that and other reasons, we are. But anyway, good to be together on Zion Adar. Always good to be together no matter what. Parsha Shir series is generously sponsored by Becky and Avi Katz and family in loving memory of Becky's father, David Grossman, the Nishmas David ben Menachem Manush. And uh, we're very grateful to the Grossmans for their generosity. This morning's year is also sponsored by Shane Dianelli Last in commemoration of the yesterday's year site of Shandy's sister, Riva Frankel, Miriam Riva Bas Avram Ephraim Ve'etel, and in gratitude to Booker Tone Synagogue for uh, whatever it is they're grateful for. Thank you so much for your generosity. And by Sandy and Cindy Goldschmidt, Zechanishmas Achaver Ephraim Ben Hachaver Moshe Yehuda, Tzvi Bas Avraham. Sivia Bas Avraham Matisyo and Moshe Ben Simcha. Big thank you to the Goldschmidts. And all of our learning is dedicated for a speedy, complete, and painless refuah shleima for Esther Tehila Bas Tzipora, uh, Bas Ariel Tzipora, and for Carmel Shai Ben Reza. Okay, page 464, page 464 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. And let's begin even before the beginning. How do you begin before the beginning? Before we get to the Pasha, as I said, today is Zion Adar. And uh, if you'll go to a Zion Adar dinner or event tonight for the Chaver Kaddish, you'll hear more about Zion Adar. The Gemara Miguel tells us Haman's miscalculation. He thought the seventh of Adar was only an inauspicious day, and that's why he chose it to exterminate the Jewish people, because that was the day of Moshe Rabbeinu's Yeretzite. That's when he died. That was the day of his demise. What he miscalculated was also the day of his birth. But who cares? He died after his birth. So maybe the fact that the Yeretzite, the death, should be what captures the theme of the day. Where did he go wrong in making a mistake and not recognizing it's the day of his birth? So go to a design another dinner for that. That's not what I want to focus on. I want to focus instead on, not today, Tuesday, but next Monday night, before we'll get together again next week, because that is a little holiday called... Little holiday. Taka, it's a little holiday. It's called... Purim Katan. It's a little holiday. You see what I did there? It's a little holiday. The Ramah of Moshe Eslis con- concludes his commentary on the entire Shulchan Aruch, the section of Orachayim, the section of daily living, the uh, six volumes of Mishnah Burah that we have, it's divided into. The Ramah of Moshe Eslis, Krakow, Poland, 16th century, concludes his entire commentary on Orachayim with the following words. Mikomakom yarbeketzas suuda kidei latzes yidei hamachmirim. Some people observe Purim Katan, most neglect, don't even acknowledge Purim Katan. It means there are two others, which is the real Adar and which is the extra Adar. As I said, that's an entire discussion, not for now. We observe Purim in the second Adar. Why? The Gemara's conclusion is, we're Samach Geula Geula. We observe one redemption adjacent to the other redemption. Nisan, the great redemption, and please God, what will bring the future redemption. Nisan, the redemption of Pesach. So we observe the redemption of Purim as close to it, the second Adar. So should you do anything the first Adar? Should we just let it go by? Do we allow the 14th, 15th of, of Adar Rishon to pass? without even acknowledging it. So the Ramah says, no. The Ramah says, Yar Jews don't need much of an excuse to have a meal. Have a little l'chaim, have a little meal. Why? In order to fulfill the will of those who are strict. And why? Tov lev tamid. One with a good heart rejoices and celebrates regularly. One with a good heart rejoices and celebrates regularly. And those are the closing words of the Ramah on Orachayim. That tov lev mishta tamid. A person has a good heart, is always looking for a good party, is always looking for a good excuse to break bread and to smile and to have a good time and to offer hospitality and to enjoy with other people. Tov lev, a good heart. In fact, I saw this quote from Avaran Karliner. Avaran Karliner. The one who wrote Ka'echsof, the holy, holy Shabbos song that we sing, Ka'echsof. So Rav, Karli, Rav Aaron Karliner said, Ha'atzvos ein achet. Sadness is not a sin. Aval af chet lo yachalasos es masha osa ha'atzvos. Sadness is not a sin, 
But even sin can't do to you what sadness does. Sadness is not a sin, but even sin can't do to you what sadness does. The notion of, uh, of happiness, of the being joyful, we're discussing this in our Living with Amuna series right now, and we discussed last week, we'll continue tomorrow, that doesn't mean that there aren't moments of pain, of grief, there aren't moments of difficulty or challenge, there aren't moments that we feel down in the dumps, it's legitimate, it's okay, person has to honor those feelings, but it means on the whole, or even within those feelings, to find the simcha, to find the shleimus, to find Hashem, even within those moments. So a person makes a mistake, chet is a mistake. You violate a chet, you do an avera, it's a terrible thing, and it's harmful. It has a negative imp- impact and residual influence on us, but it can't do what sadness does. When a person becomes hopeless and helpless, when a person is sad, when a person is down and out, when a person gives up, the negative energy, what that creates for us. So says the Ramah, Tov Lev, Mishta Tamid. One with a good heart rejoices and celebrates regularly. It's very interesting that the Ramah, I don't want to spend too much time on this, I want to get to the Parsha, but the Ramah ends, ends Orachayim the way he begins. Tov Lev, Mishta Tamid. The very last word of his commentary on Orachayim is Tamid. Tamid means always, consistently, constantly, continuously. And he begins Orachayim the same way. How does the Ramah begin Orachayim? The Ramah begins the laws of Hashkama Saboker. How are you supposed to wake up in the morning? What is the way to wake up? Zakta Ramah, Shivisi Hashem, Lenegdi, Samid, who call Gadol Torah. You want to know an important rule, an important principle in Torah? Shivisi Hashem, Lenegdi, Samid. Hashem, you're always opposite me. Everywhere I go, you're not just in shul, and I don't leave you in the base medrash, and I didn't leave you behind when I finish the Pasha class, and then I go on to the rest of my secular, profane, mundane life. Shivisi Hashem summit. you're everywhere with me. You're in the kitchen, you're in the carpool, you're in the court, you're in the operating room, the boardroom, you're with me wherever I go. Shivisi Hashem Lenegdi, Tamid, Samid. Kodesh you're with me always, consistently. So the Ramah both begins and ends Orachayim with the same word, Tamid. Tamid is the very definition of what it means to be a, a Jew. In fact, the Shari Tshuva quotes a practice of writing these words, Shivisi Hashem Lenegdi Samid, on a piece of paper and putting them in your sitter. Make it the home screen of your smartphone. Make it the sticker outside your laptop. Make it the, it's to be what's on our mind all the time. Hashem, I'm never without you. I can lean on you and I can count on you and I thank you and I protest you and I feel that your presence at my side all the time, always and forever, you're always around me. This notion of the Tamid, that the Ramah both begins and ends Orachayim with, one should always feel that they're in the presence that they have the support, the love of Hashem, that He's aware of and holds us accountable for all we do, all the time and always. That's the way we wake up in the morning, the way that we greet the day. Skaber Ka'ari, we jump up and we wake up like a lion. We don't just schlep out a day, 17 snoozes, we crawl on hands and knees to go splash some water on our face, and we're miserable, we'd rather get back in bed. But we, Skaber Ka'ari, we greet the day like a lion with a roar. We wake up to greet the day. Every day is filled with promise and possibility. Every day is hope and optimism. Every day is sunshine and every day is, is illumination, is brightness. We jump up and we greet that day. So glad, so grateful, so hopeful each and every day. But with a sense of Hashem, I'm greeting the day and I'm gonna lie and I'm gonna kill it. But what am I gonna kill it in? Business? I'm gonna kill it in Gashmias and materialism? I'm going to kill it and feeling you're by my side, living with you, talking to you, being grateful to you. And the Ramah ends the same way, Purim Katan. Next week, we don't always have it. It's only in a leap year. Purim Katan, I have a little uh, Suda. Why? Because a happy person is always happy to have another Suda. Have a Lachaim. Why? Doesn't matter, Lachaim. Because you're alive to life. We're alive, Lachaim, to life. The Ramah opens and closes the same way. In his introduction to En Yaakov, a commentary on the Agadic sections of the Gemara, Rav Yaakov ibn Chaviv quotes a medrash. It's a medrash nobody's found. It's a medrash we don't seem to have extant, which means it's not even really ever a medrash, or we lost the medrash, but we have a tradition of this medrash. And many are familiar with it, I don't want to belabor the point, but this does connect to our parsha. The medrash had a debate. There's been a conference and convention. If I was going to take the time, I would paint the picture of how they were at the Homowak and they served Chinese food and all the rabbis were there for this conference and they had a big debate and a big question of what Pasuk, what verse in the Torah most accurately, most authentically captures the essence of what Torah is about. What is the bumper sticker? What is the motto of the Jewish people? 
So Ben Zoma says, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. What do you mean? What's the motto of the Jewish people? The uniqueness, the oneness of Hashem. What is the motto of the Jewish people? What is the mission statement of the life of a Jew? It's Kabbalah Salmachu Shemayim. To recognize that we submit and surrender to Him. How many people, these were the last words on their lips, as they were martyrs, they gave their lives for being Jews. This is deal. what every parent puts their child to bed every night. Let's say Shema. Don't forget to say Shema. So Ben Zoma says, what's the motto? What's the bumper sticker? It's easy. The mission statement is Shema. Rabbi Akiva, who himself said Shema when he was murdered by the Romans, but did not suggest it was Shema, he claims there's a more important Pasuk. And Rabbi Akiva learned this likely after 24,000 of his own students died, because they did not figure out with all their total learning, with all their scholarship, with all their strictness, they did not figure out how to just be nice to one another. So Rabbi Kiva says, you know what the motto, the mission statement of the Jew is? Love your neighbor as yourself, that's it. Now who's the neighbor? Love Hashem, love the people, and both love. Be a person who loves. Don't be a person who fights. There are fighters and there are lovers. Be a lover, not a fighter. There are people who love to fight. What the fight is on any particular day, you could, you know, find and replace, cut and paste. You could substitute. That day's fight, they have yet to figure out what it's going to be. All they know is there's going to be a fight. There are people who love to fight. They want to fight. They look to fight. They love to fight. They get some cortisol or adrenaline release from the fight. They love to fight. So Rabbi Kiva sees his students are fighters and he says, stop being fighters, be lovers. Love everybody. Love Hashem, love your fellow man, be a lover. But then there's a third opinion. And the third opinion is a Pasuk from our Pasha, Tetzave. And it is, Offer one sheep in the morning, offer one sheep in the afternoon, the Karban Tamid. The Karban Tamid was offered. The Ner Tamid we read about in the beginning of the parasha, we'll read in one moment the opening Pasuk. And the Karban Tamid, the daily sacrifice. In fact, we fast on Shavasar Batamas. We fast, we launch the three weeks, the opening fast that launches the three weeks of grieving, of mourning, Shavasar Batamas, the five reasons that are given in the end of Masechus Tanis. And one of the reasons is Batla Karban Tamid. We had this daily sacrifice and we offered it. Rain, sleet, snow, Shabbos, Yom Tif, Yom Kit, didn't matter. 365 days a year, the daily sacrifice was offered every morning and every afternoon. You know, I got a taste of this Gemara a little bit. When two years ago, we're approaching the anniversary of that fateful day we sat in my office and we spoke to the hospital, the head of the hospital, and he asked us, he beseeched us, you gotta close down the shul. Remember the two weeks we closed in order to flatten the curve? Two weeks have become two years, but the two weeks to flatten the curve. When we closed down that shul, it was a Friday, and shul, that Shabbos was desolate, was empty. There was a minion here every single day since the opening of shul, every morning and every evening, even during the hurricanes. When we had hurricanes and we were able, there wasn't a full 24-hour period, there wasn't a minion. They make fun of me because I missed Minyan during the hurricane. Rabbi Klein, a Holocaust survivor who was in his 80s, found his way to Shul in the middle of the hurricane. Okay, he was built tougher, clearly. But even during the hurricanes, we had Minyanim. So when we closed the Shul down, the significance of something you're used to, tumid every single day, dependable, reliable, predictable, and stops, gets closed down, it's shuttered, it's painful. So we fast every year Shavasa Batamas because we remember among the five calamities, among the five traumatic things we still haven't collectively recovered from yet, was Batla Karban Tamid. You could count on it, you could set your watch to it every morning, every evening, the Karban Tamid was offered. Every day, it superseded Shabbos, Yantav, every single day. And we were prevented, the Babylonians, in the first Churban, they stopped it. Wow. So this is the Karban Tamid. So can you imagine they have a, they have a vote? While the rabbis are there, they've each eaten three egg rolls, a bunch of lo mein, and now they take the vote. And what's the vote? Ben Zoma says, most important pasuk is Shema. Rabbi Kiva says, no, 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 no. Be a lover, not a fighter. And the third opinion says, I think the bumper sticker for the Jewish people, the home screen of every one of our phones, the bumper sticker on our car, and on our dashboard, and the bathroom mirror should all be Are you kidding me? Shema, v'yahavta, I get. I said, keves echad, boker, So they took a vote, the measure relates, and the vote concluded that. Which one is the model, the mission statement of the Jew? Of course, it's the third. Otherwise, I would not be telling you this to our Torah. I said, keves echad, boker. The Korban Tamid, the daily. Why? 
Because you know what the real mission and motto statement of motto and mission statement of a Jew is? Consistency, continuity, reliability, dependability. Not fair weather fan. Not when it feels good. Not when it's convenient. Not when it's comfortable. Tamid, consistent, regular, dependable, reliable. You can't just be a mensch when you have a mindset. You can't just do mitzvos when you're home, not when you're on vacation, not when you're on the road. You don't just talk to Hashem when you're in the mood, when you're feeling spiritual, when you're on a high. Tamid. So the Ramah both begins and ends his commentary in Shulchan Aruch, the Halacha. Shivisi Hashem lenegdi samid. Hashem, you're with me always. You're not only with me when I think you'll be happy with what I'm watching or saying or listening to or eating. You're with me always when I'm choosing what to watch or listen to or say or how to fill out my tax return or what to do with my time or where I go on my vacation. And Tov Lev Mishta Tamid, Purim Cotton, you're also with me when I choose to feel Simcha. Happiness is a decision, not an emotion. Again, we're talking about on Wednesday mornings. So you're with me, Tamid, consistent, constant, reliable, dependable. That's who I am. That's how the Ramah both begins and ends his, his commentary. And that's what we need. That's what we are. All, that's what we are all about. Vince Lombardi says the only place success comes before work is in the dictionary. The only place success comes before work is in the dictionary. You want to accomplish in life, physically, spiritually, relationship in any area of life, tamid, consistency. All right, so that's a little Purim cotton and a little Parsha. But now let's dive right into the Parsha more directly with the opening Pasuk, page 464. Command the children of Israel, they should take pure olive oil, pressed for illumination, to kindle a lamp continuously. Tamid, here we see Tamid again repeated. We also see a definition of Tamid, by the way. The Korban Tamid was not offered all day every day, it was offered the morning and the evening. And there's a big machlokus about the ner tamid, the candelabra. Did it burn continuously or was it lit daily? But you see that one definition of tamid is daily. Doesn't necessarily mean all day, but it means daily. It means whatever you are meant to do daily, whatever commitment you made, you show up. You're reliable, you're dependable, you do it. You don't break that record. So if you make a commitment, I'm not going to look at my phone during davening. You don't want to break that record. You don't want to break that streak. If you learn the daf yomi, 2,711 pages in a row. You don't want to break that streak. That's the Korban Tamid. That's the definition of regularly. Vi'ata. Who's Vi'ata? You. You command B'nai Israel, And here's what you should tell them. Get some olives, crush them for some olive oil, and use it for the candelabra, for the leichter, for the menorah in the Mishkan. Who's you, Vi'ata, and you? Who's the and you? This is not a trick question. Audience participation is allowed. Who's and you? Moshe Rabbeinu. So in fact, in fact, Zion Adar falls out, Parshas Tetzava. By the way, this is why it seems from the Mishnah Bura, it's more appropriate for the Heber Kadisha to observe the first Zion Adar because it coincides with Parshas Tetzava and Zion Adar, Moshe left the world. Moshe's name doesn't appear in Parshas Tetzava. Ostensibly, though it's not true, Moshe's name appears in every Parsha from when we are introduced to him in Shmos through the end of the Torah. This is the one Parsha that doesn't appear. Why doesn't it appear here? Because next week Moshe will threaten, God erase me from your book. So Hashem says, okay, don't bluff, because I will. And he erases him from the book and he leaves him out of Parsha's Tetzava, only he doesn't. And how does he not leave him out of Parsha's Tetzava? Where does he appear in Parsha's Tetzava? In the word, viata, and you. And the Baba Chereba, Zechat Tzadik Levracha, Likute Sichos explains, we've spoken about this in the past, you can listen to, I think, last year, two years ago, Shir, says, in fact, Moshe being referred to as viata, a pronoun, is an even higher, deeper, more authentic reflection of who Moshe is than using his name. A name limits a person, and you is the essence. A name is a description of a person, but in some ways is a limitation of the person. But we rise even above our name. We are so much more than just our name. Who we are, our essence. Who we are when no one is around. The who we are that nobody sees or knows. The Kodesh HaKadoshim in us that we spoke about last week and we wrote about last week. The parochas that separates the Kodesh HaKadoshim. The capacity to still have a private place, inner thoughts, 
that ve'ata, the and you, is an even higher and even holier. We spoke about it last week. The Balaturim points out that the word ve'ata is ata velo acher. The Balaturim says ve'ata, Moshe, you and nobody else. Ata velo shlichacha. You and not through an agent. You and not through someone you appoint. You directly. What was so important about crushing the olive oil? What was so important about kindling the menorah that it had to be Moshe Rabbeinu directly ve'ata you and not anybody else? Didn't Yisro just teach Moshe about delegating? Delegating is a key and core character trait, a quality for a efficient, productive executive. If you want to be successful, you have to learn how to delegate. So maybe Moshe will hear the instruction and delegate. Hey, you go tell them they need to light the menorah, crush the olives. Why did it have to be Moshe specifically? And Lashon Sivui, the menorah and the carbon tamid. So why does it need titzaveh, command? Command is harsh, not request, not share, not ask, not tell. Command, I command you, I command you. It's very harsh, very strong. Why did this require a command and why did it have to be Moshe Rabbeinu directly? And the answer is because both the menorah and the carbon tamid have to be done daily. And you know what, it is very hard to be consistent. It's really hard to be consistent. We get excited, we get pumped, we get that high, we get inspired, we join the gym, we start running, we start doing squats and lunges, we start doing a plank, we start accepting upon ourselves not to speak Lashonara between 2 and 3 a.m., or to say this many Tehillim, or uh, I'm gonna start the Daf Yomi, the Mishnah Yomi. Last Shabbos I attended a beautiful kudos and accolades to the women of our community. It was a beautiful kid a Shabbos morning, an amazing group of women, including two 12-year-old girls in our community who finished Tanakh. There were many more who started Tanakh, many, many more who started Tanakh, but to get to the finish line of Tanakh, it's a whole other story. To make it to the very end, it's unbelievable. So Talmud, to do something consistently, continuously, to make it to the finish line, to tzaveh, it requires strong language, command. We have to invigorate ourselves. The Ramchal, Mesil Sharm, talks about zrizus. There are two zrizus. You need a zrizus, you need an alacrity and enthusiasm to start a project. That we all know. You hear a drusha, a motivational speaker, you see, you read, you saw something, it moves you, it inspires you, that's it, a project. I'm redoing my home. I'm starting Dafyomi, volunteering for Chesed. I'm going to get my health and wellness in order. Whatever it is, we get excited. Zerizas at the beginning. But then there's a proverbial wall that we run into. And how do you climb over or through or around or under that wall? You need a second burst of Zerizas. The Ramchal talks about Hasharim, that quality of when you hit that wall and most others give up, how do you persevere? How do you fight through? How do you keep doing it? And how do you finish what you started? So titzaveh, these are two things, the menorah and the carbon tamid, they require tamid. So that which requires tamid needs a little extra, mm, needs a little extra urge, a little extra encouragement. Moreover, both of them cost something. We spoke about this last week. Got a beautiful donation from somebody in the New York area with an email. They chose to remain anonymous. They said, I heard this year on Parshish Truma and I dug deep into my pocket, even though I had already allocated all my tzedaka, but message heard, and I made this donation to Bokerton Synagogue. So very beautiful, very, very beautiful. And to that person, if they're watching, thank you, deeply appreciated. So Chesron Kiss, when something costs something, you also need a Lashon Tetzafa. You also need a command, you also need an encouragement, you also need an urge. So you need the two things here. But we still need to understand that answer is why Lashon Tetzafa. But why Moshe himself? Vyata, you, not anyone else. Don't delegate, don't hand it off, you, and not through an agent, not anyone else. Why? So, in the Sefer Lusitcha El Yom, this beautiful Sefer we've been going through, which is a collection of Bali Musar on the Parsha, he quotes here and he says the following. He says, Moshe Rabbeinu was an enormous role model in this area. It took a Moshe Rabbeinu asking and encouraging them to do it because he had done it themselves and they all saw it. When did Moshe when did he show a selfless, mysterious nefesh, a willingness to forego financial gain to serve Hashem? 
When? Where? Where did we see it? Parshas B'Shalach. Who said that? Shkoyach. Parshas B'Shalach. They cross the sea. The sea miraculously closes on the Egyptian chariots that are laden with gold and silver. They're ornate with all kinds of jewels. They wash up onto the bank of the sea and every Jew is stuffing everything they can into their pockets. We spoke about this Parshat B'Shalach. In Mitzrayim, they hesitated, they didn't want to take. Now they can't get enough. What happened between? We spoke about that Parshat B'Shalach. So everyone's stuffing their pockets. Everyone's collecting in their arms as much as they can. They needed to be pulled from the edge of the sea. They just wanted more and more and more. Security, financial stability, wealth. After 210 years of slavery, Moshe Rabbeinu, he's not collecting one thing for himself. You know what he's busy collecting? Atmos Yosef, the bones of Yosef. He's fulfilling a promise that had been made years before. He is carrying not only the Atmos, the bones of Yosef, he's carrying the Atmos Yosef, the essence of Yosef. And the essence of Yosef is, in a moment of temptation, desire, and lust, to overcome. Yosef had proved that and put it in us. So that is the Atmos, the essence of Yosef. And Moshe Rabbeinu chooses to carry the Atzmus Yosef, the essence of Yosef, the perseverance and the tenacity to overcome temptation, desire, to do what's right. That's what he's carrying rather than the wealth, rather than the gold. So we see from here, From here there's an incredible lesson for all educators, for anyone who wants to have influence over others. You can't just lecture and give lip service. You can't just dictate and tell. You have to practice. You have to be a living example. What we say has to match what we do. Ralph Waldo Emerson, I can't hear what you're saying because your actions are speaking so loudly. Our actions have to reinforce what we say, or what we say rather has to reinforce what we do. So Moshe Rabbeinu had proven, he had lived this. And now, when he says, it's going to cost you, it's not going to be easy, you're going to have to be consistent, you're going to have to find the tenacity and the resilience. Moshe was in the position to be able to tell them and to lecture them because he had also lived it. You have to take to yourself, Shemen Zayez Zach. I saw the Imre Chaim, the Imre Chaim, the vision editor says, Tetzave, Lashon Tzavos means to connect, a kesher, a bond. Viata, Hashem is telling Moshe here something. You, Tetzave, bond, connect, as B'nai Yisrael, connect with the Jewish people. How? Yikwe Lecha, draw them close to you. You, Moshe Rabbeinu, are a peer. You, Moshe Rabbeinu, you're Moshe Rabbeinu. You're the greatest human being that ever lived. It's one of the 13 principles of faith to believe that Moshe is categorically different than all others. So you, Moshe, you're up here. But you know how you get close to the people? Come down to them. Be close to them. Be connected with them. Bond with them. Pure olive oil. Or it has to be crushed for the purpose of illuminating. You're going to use it in the, in the Mishkan. The Medrash Mos Rabbah tells us the Jewish people are likened to this olive. Jewish people are likened to the olive. This olive psh, takes a beating. The way the olive first grows on the tree, and then the way it's harvested and plucked, and then you smash it and smush it, and then you put it into the press, and then you put an enormous stone, you roll it over it, you press it, you smush it, you kick it, you beat it, and only then do you get the delicious, the beautiful olive oil that flows. Says the Medrash, Kach Yisrael, Boim Umos Ha'olam. The nations of the world, the anti-Semites, Yemach Shemam V'Zechram, they come, they crush, they beat, they step on. Mimakam Lomakam V'Chovshun Asam Achakach Osam Shuvah. And then we, the Jewish people, we repent from having been stepped on and smushed and creamed and squeezed. Then we do tshuva and we say, that's not who we want to be. We have to live better, earn more, earn more merit, not earn more profit. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu ona lahem, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu answers, Shinemar, betzar lachal mutzauchal kol dvar ma'ila. So the question of Yechezka Lovenstein, the Mashkiach of the Panovich wonders, I don't understand. We started out and it sounded like 
Hashem loves us and we're like the olive that we're beautiful and radiate in the tree. And then we get squeezed and scrushed and but a beautiful olive oil comes out. It sounds like what is worth more? I don't know if that's the gardener or a blender or what's going on back there. But anyone could feel free to ask them to resume at 10.30. Thank you. Someone's going, thank you. Deeply appreciate it. So which is worth more? You go to the store. What costs more? Olive oil? Pure olive oil or olives? Olive oil. Olive oil is worth more. Pure olive oil. We use olive oil in cooking. Olive oil is used in skincare. Olive oil is used in, in fragrance. Olive oil is used in all kinds of important things. So it sounds like the Medrash was telling us that when you squeeze and crush and step on and smush, the olive oil that comes out is more precious and more valuable. So too with the Jewish people. Those anti-Semites, they're trying to exterminate and destroy us, but you know what happens? We become better, stronger, more resilient, more focused, more faithful. What comes out is even stronger. But then the Medrash ends by saying, so to the Jewish people who do tshuva and realize that they're lowly, crushed, good for nothing, and then they do tshuva and they're proven worthy, and now they're like olive oil. So what happened? What happened? So he says, Yisrael nimshel l'zayis l'amnednu, to teach us, to teach us, shekeshem shazayis l'mrosh ha-peros ha-noyim u-mshibachim u-shmenem m'shubach, onam zelam agiyah bekalos, so a lot, a lot of lessons that we learn out of the olive in the comparison to the Jew. Number one is, you do not get the olive oil out of the olive easily. You want some lemon juice on your fish? Yeah, you squeeze the lemon and you got lemon juice on your fish. You want some orange juice? You give a stickle squeeze to the orange, you have some orange juice. You want an olive oil, you don't squeeze the olive. Anyone make their own olive oil at home? People make orange juice, make grapefruit juice, make lemon juice. But olive oil, you got to squeeze and crush and step on and press. It takes a lot of work. Lo magia bekalos doesn't come easily. Nidresha zigia tircha atzuma atshemotzina shmeinam. Kach Yisrael lo magim lamalas haatzuma shakadosh baruch yishrish bemiderach kala. So too we don't realize and recognize the incredible potential and power, the potency we have within ourselves without being pressed and squeezed, without being pushed. This is the idea of an isam. We've spoken about this many times before as well that Avram Avinu and all of our Avos underwent Nisyonos. They underwent tests because through a test, we bring out, we take it from the potential into the real. It's only when we're pressed against the wall that we're forced to realize within ourselves possibility we never knew. Many in this room, many we all know have gone through very, very hard times. We wonder, we ask, and we wish it didn't happen. And all of that is true. And all of that is true. But afterwards, we realize and discover things about ourselves that if we're honest, we admit we never ever would have discovered or realized had we not been put through that situation to begin with. Still doesn't necessarily mean we're grateful for it, we want it or wish it, but we grew and we realized in ways we never otherwise would have. So when we go through those hardships and those difficult times, we have to look for and extract and capture and then advance whatever it is that we learned. Moreover, moreover, Another connection. This is brought by Rabbarach Saratskin, the Rosh tells. He says, Oh. Tzarech Lahavin. Ma dimyon ben Shemon li Yisrael. Why are the Jewish people likened to oil? Hashem nekoch metziusi v'tivish and yechol etzarevim shar mashkim. You know, oil can't mix with any other liquid. Oil always stays separate. Mashain came be Israel Umos, Amnishbikah Isser. Mad Dimyon the Shemen. So Bar Suratskin says, Hadvarm Kipshutam. Yisrael may etzem tivam enam yehonless Arab Bagayim. Shikinim Bnuyam Mitsius Ruchnisha inana nearest la ine basavit, begam ilu shahalila ozu enam is dabkim zebizeh, rak nisharim la olam nefradim. What was his question? His question was, you can shake up the salad dressing, but when you set it down and it rests, the olive oil is always going to separate from the water. It's nature. It's science. We believe in science. It's science. The olive oil is always going to separate from the other liquid. So why are the Jewish people compared to olive oil? There's over a 70% intermarriage rate. Rahman al Outside the Orthodox today, it's over seven. More than seven out of ten Jews are not going to marry a Jew. How can you say we don't mix? We have an isr not to mix, but there is a mixture. So Rav Baruch Zeratzka and Rav says, it's as inherent, it should be as natural within the Jew to stay separate and to realize 
that we have a different responsibility and we're here for a different mission. It should be as natural. It should be as scientific. It should be as built into the Bria as olive and, and water, as oil and water not mixing. He doesn't mention this, but this is what we say in Havdalah every Motei Shabbos. Ben Yisrael la'amim. On the one hand, we participate in, we contribute to, we take from society around us. We've said it countless times. Avram Avinu ger v'toshev anochi imachem. We're a ger, we're a stranger and a toshev at the same time, simultaneously. But really in our essence, in our core, when we say Avdallah every Motzei Shabbos, we come out of Shabbos and we remind ourselves, here are the core principles, here are the core values. A Jew needs to distinguish between holy and profane. A Jew needs to distinguish between Shabbos and the rest of the days of the week. And a Jew needs to distinguish between the Jewish people and the rest of the world. That even while we contribute to and take from, but we have to remember we're different. And our differences are not superimposed upon us. Our differences are natural. They're built into the Bria. They're programmed and they are, and they are real. Okay, what is the purpose of the Big Day Kuna? So we go from here. I'll just pose a question you can think about and come back to another time that this section that began about squeezing the olives, the olive oil, the candelabra, does it belong here? It doesn't belong here. Where does it belong? Pasha Zamor. Here we're hearing about the materials and the designs for the utensils last week's parsha, for the big day kahuna this week's parsha. What is this doing here? It doesn't belong. The whole first two psukim of our parsha do not belong here. Why were they put here between Truma and the beginning of Tetzava? Why are they here? They don't belong here. What makes much more sense is should start it from Pasuk Aleph. And you even see that in the break of the Prakim. Really, the parsha should begin Perch of Ches, Pasuk Aleph. And now, bring yourself, Aaron, your brother with his sons, and from among the children, bring them close to me. Bring Aaron and his sons. And then we again list Aaron, and now we list his sons. Bnei Aaron, the sons of Aaron. If I've ever seen redundancy, it's here. <laughs> Moshe is told, bring Aaron, your brother, and his sons close. Who are they? Aaron, Adav, and Aviyu, Elazar, Itamar, who are the sons of your brother Aaron. This Pasuk makes no sense. Does it bother any of you? You don't look like it bothers you. Come on, show me a face like it bothers you. So we're not going to give an answer, but I want you to think about that. Why the redundancy? Why do we repeat? Why is the Pasuk structured in that very bizarre way. But why is Moshe supposed to bring them close? Viasisa big day kodesh It's time to make clothing for your brother. Lechavor ulisifaras. And what is the purpose of this clothing? Purpose of the clothing is lechavor ulisifaras. Lechavor ulisifaras. So we'll go from one telzer to another. The quarter of Baruch Sarotskin, and now we go to the Megid Yosef. Now we go to Yosef Yehuda Leib Sarotskin in his Megid Yosef. And he says the following. Not only is there a question of what does it mean that the clothing is l'chavad l'sefaris? What does it mean that the clothing, the purpose of the clothing is for wisdom and splendor, for glory and splendor? But moreover, fast forward. Go to Pasuk Gimel. Now the Pasuk says, I want you to go find tailors and seamstresses. And what's the... They're going to make the clothing that I just told you about. And a moment ago, I told you that the purpose of the clothing is what? It's a good brand. Someone should make the brand. Brand of clothing, covered with safaris. And now he says, but what's the purpose? To sanctify and to serve me. So which is it? Wonders the Megid Yosef. Is the purpose of the big day kahuna, or the purpose of the priestly garments, are they Are they for glory and splendor? Or are they for to sanctify and to serve me. Which is it? So he says, he quotes the Zohar. The Zohar says, It tells the tailor, you think you're the only one operating the sewing machine? You think you're the one making the clothing? I'm writing it with you. I'm your partner. I'm your partner. And the Begadim Nasa Yidei Nahora Ila Nahora Tata Kula Kechada. It means that Shakavana Basias of Begadim Sarchlios Mein Hadavar Shaaso. Bekedushu Vetahara Ila is Lekadsho Lataroli. You, the producers, the manufacturers of this holy and sacred clothing, you need to know while you're doing it 
that you're doing it to advance and serve a holy purpose. We're physical beings and we value the aesthetic, we see the beauty and we appreciate beauty. We appreciate beauty, we appreciate quality. There's nothing wrong with appreciating the aesthetic. We appreciate beauty. It has value. There's godliness in beauty. It's one of the wisdoms is aesthetic beauty. That's why we beautify God. Why does it matter that my esrog is beautiful? Why does it matter that my tefillin, my sefer Torah, that I light my candles on a beautiful candelabra? Why does all that matter? Because we appreciate it. The king had to get a haircut daily. The Kohen Gadol had to dress in fine clothing that is majestic, that's royal. Why, bless you? Because people appreciate when they see, they honor, they understand. It's godly, it's royal, it's majestic. And this is what, this is the answer to the question. It says the Megid Yosef, so when it comes to the people wearing it, when it comes to the people wearing it, they have to know, I stand for God, I'm the Kohen Gadol, I'm in a position of leadership. I represent God, I represent Hashem, I represent His wisdom. And one of the ways to bring people close is for them to see and admire and appreciate the aesthetic and the beauty. The Chavod Sefaris. However, to the people who are manufacturing it, to the people who are making and producing the garment that will later be worn in order to represent and elevate, they have to be focused, the covered, the kedusha, the kadsha, lechan only, and to have other machshavas pikul, to have some extraneous thought. Ooh, I'm the one making the clothing of the big of the kohen gadol. Ooh, isn't it beautiful and majestic? Isn't it valuable and priceless? No, the kadsha or lechan only. When we manufacture, when we do it, it has to be for the purpose of the Kachal Khan And then when we use it, it has to be the Chaval Sefaris. And this inside of the Megid Yosef, I would apply not just to the difference in the way the Big Day Kahuna are depicted, but you can extend it beyond. When you go buy that beautiful, majestic Kiddush cup, a couple of years ago I bought myself a new, beautiful Kiddush cup. I'm very into Shabbos, if you don't know, and the Shabbos table to have beautiful, beautiful items. The whole Shabbos table is elevated. And I'm not saying be ostentatious. And I'm not saying show off, and I'm certainly not saying buy beyond your means and go into debt with what you can't afford. There's a beauty to simplicity also. There's a beauty to that which is ornate and beautiful, and that which is shiny, and that which is valuable. It shows what we value. We elevate, we transform. So when you go buy that Kiddush cup, it has to be Lekachar Lechan Oli. I'm going to buy it not to show off. I'm going to buy it not to flex. I'm going to buy it not to be ostentatious. But when I lift that Kiddush cup to make Kiddush out of a beautiful, beautiful Kiddush cup, which is so heavy, I can barely lift it in my hand, that's the Chavr Lusifaris. Psh, look how beautiful, look how majestic, look how amazing. Shabbos, Shabbos is what's amazing. And whether I have a packed full table, or whether I'm home all alone, I still use that same Kiddush cup because it's the Chavr Lusifaris. I'm turning and transforming that material into that which is holy for you. The Chavr Lusifaris. So I thought this was a brilliant insight of why the difference, are the big day kahuna, are they l'chavr l'sifaris, or are they l'kachr l'chan oli? It depends. One is addressing the kohanim who would wear it, and the other was addressing those who would manufacture and produce it. Okay. Rav Ruvain Feinstein, I also got in the mail. My good friend Lenny Friedman sent me the latest Rav Ruvain Feinstein. Nahor Shalom, his commentary on the Parsha. On Sefer Shemos, he sent me Vayikra also, so be rest assured. I don't want anyone to worry as we're finishing up Sefer Shemos. He quotes, Torah says, Big Day Kahuna, which the sons of Aaron Akon would wear, must be Lechavad Sefaris, glory and splendor. The Rosh Hashiva is Echad Sadiq I assume when Rav Ruvain Feinstein refers to the Rosh Hashiva, he's talking about his father, Rav Moshe. He didn't say, My father, Rav Moshe, Avi Mori, the Rosh Hashiva. Asked, if you think about it, the four garments mentioned here, the pants, the tunics, the sashes, and the turbans, that Hashem said should be made, the Chaval Sefaris, are four basic garments a person always wears. <laughs> These are not extra things. This is not a description of the additional layers that we don't normally wear. So why, if these are basic garments that people often or always wear, in what way is our ordinary clothing, L'Shem Sefaris? 
Accordingly, the clothing was also functioning to protect the coin from being naked. Not only the Chavad and Sepharis. Notice, men who wore pants here today. Why are you wearing pants? Why are you wearing pants? Everybody knows it's a horrific nightmare to wake up and you had a nightmare that you were in a public place and you forgot to put your pants on. Would you say, I'm wearing my pants? L'chavar l'sifaris. Do you know these are Lululemon pants? These are, uh, you know what I spent on these pants? Special pants. Custom made pants. L'chavar l'sifaris. I'm wearing pants because it's a busha to be seen in public without pants. It happens to be that a lot of society today didn't get that memo. <laughs> happens to be. They never got the memo that it's a nightmare to be naked in public. For many, they think it's a dream, not a nightmare. But it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare to be naked in public. We should still, should still be a nightmare. I give us all a bracha for ourselves and our children. It should remain a nightmare. So what do you mean? The clothing is l'shem l'sifaris? L'chav l'sifaris? The clothing is, so it's not a busha, that I'm naked. This was the question that Rosh Hashiva asked. So the answer he gave was that we need to understand the whole idea behind clothing. Before the sin of Eitz Adam and Chava could walk around unclothed without feeling any shame whatsoever. The notion of being unclothed in public and not noticing or feeling that's a dream, that is a reserve for the period of the, of the, of the Gan Eden. When we were first created, and the Yitzhahara was not intrinsic, the Yitzhahara was not internal, the Yitzhahara was manifest in the Nachash and the snake, external, it was a voice outside ourselves, but we were pure, and all we had was the Yitzhahatov, and we were destined to have immortality, to live forever, so a person didn't notice they were naked, because nakedness and the temptation that comes with it are all part of the Yitzhahara. Freud argued, and he wasn't wrong, that it is the most, the strongest, the most fundamental, Yetzirah that man struggles with is the Yetzirah for licentiousness, for promiscuity, for this area of life, which is where awareness of nakedness or unawareness of it comes from. They were perfect in every way and their behavior was as well, so they had nothing to hide and no reason to feel shame. On that level, appearing unclothed is not embarrassing. It doesn't call attention to anything negative. When doing the Avodah, coin must ideally be on the level of Adamarish and Kodamachit. He should be so elevated and pure at that moment he could come before Hashem even if he were not wearing any clothing at all. His entire physical body, his makam amila, would be viewed only the shem shemayim, perfect and flawless, immortal. If a kohen would be on this level, regular items of clothing that Hashem commands him to wear are unnecessary to prevent embarrassment. The only reason to wear them is why? Therefore, therefore, it, it is only shame born of using our bodies the wrong way that creates the need for clothing. Now the Yitzhara becomes part of us, a great potential exists for us to sin. To appear naked is to expose us to the embarrassment of this potential corruption. And we're thus embarrassed to be in this state, forcing us to walk around clothing, clothed. So in other words, in Gan Eden, by the way, right after, in Gan Eden, right after the sin, the chait, they eat of the Eitz and Kersh Baruch says, what did you do? All of a sudden, what's their first reaction? Adam and Chava turn to one another, what do they say? Say, did you feel that breeze? Something feel a little off? <gasps> and Akash Baruch clothes them. It's a great act of chesed. Why were they not? They weren't aware of their nakedness before. Only now do they feel shame and modesty and cover up. What happened? The answer is the Yitzhara was external. It became internal. So it's a beautiful insight. Rav Ruben quotes from his father. Said Rav Moshe, the clothing that we ordinarily wear and that we wear to cover our nakedness, not because of Chavar Sepharis. Why is it called Chavar Sepharis? Because the idea is that the Kohen Gadol the Kohanim serving in the Mikdash, the Kohanim should be on the level of Adam and Kodam The Kohanim are try, supposed to be back to that point of no Yitzhahara. Kohanim are supposed to be living in that highest plane. So they have no need to wear clothing for anything other than L'chavar Ula Sefaris. Bessalavechik also has an insight here on these words. Sarah Bessalavechik in the Rav Chumash. L'chavar Sefaris. He says, people appointed by the public such as government officials have always worn uniforms. The post office people wear a uniform, the police wear a uniform, the army wears a uniform, uniforms. Uniform indicates that one wearing it holds an office, is endowed with authority. Even an absolute monarch wears a uniform to distinguish himself from the ordinary citizen. Leadership and distinction express themselves in distinctive garments. The dignity of man lies in his or her dress. Dignity, unlike other, any other capability, must be planted into a person. If dignity is not part of his educational process, he will never possess it. Dignity does not come on its own. 
In a king or ruler, personal capabilities or lack of them often go unnoticed, but lack of dignity is noticed. And a ruler that exhibits it is punished, that is punished by the people. Clothing is an expression not of the intellect, but of the dignity of man. And uniforms imply that those donning them are specially selected by the people and are given certain privileges that others do not receive. There's a special aspect of humility that's indispensable to positions of power. One's authority comes not from within, but from without. Hashem wanted the Kohen Gadol to realize that he was undeserving of his position. When he wore his uniform, the Kohen Gadol recognized that he filled his role not due to his own merit, which were insufficient for anyone to assume such a high office. The same is true of a king. Without donning his royal garments, he would not have the authority to act as a king. Moshe, on the other hand, required no special vestments in his position of leadership. His greatness was earned and not bestowed. So a very, very interesting insight the Rav says that when we wear clothing, we're wearing a uniform. And the purpose of a uniform, first of all, is to identify. Everyone wears a uniform. When we lived here many moons ago in Captiva, before the home we're in now, we had a neighbor across the street who no longer lives there, who uh, was Jewish, not observant, and very eccentric. Had crazy tattoos and piercings and holes and all kinds of... And often preached, we talk, we interacted and schmoozed about individual expression, not conforming, not needing to belong, being independent in her thinking, in her dress, in her everything, until one day she had a party. And I noticed that everybody who came over was also so independent that they all had the tattoos, the piercings, the whole... So they were wearing a uniform, and the uniform was independence and anti-establishment, and everyone wears a uniform. Everyone wears a uniform. The question is which one of uniform you wear. So the uniform reflects who we, with whom we want to identify. With whom we want to identify. Clothing do make the man. In many ways, the clothing does make the person. And you'll say, well, don't judge a book by the cover, and just because I dress that way, why should you assume I am that person? And the answer is, if you don't want to be assumed that way, then don't dress that way. We identify with. Now, they say dress for the job you want, not the job you have. Dress for the job that you want, not the job that you have. Who do you want to be and how do you want to be perceived by others? So on the one hand, the uniform is a point of identity. But Rabbi Soloveitchik is saying so brilliantly that the uniform also has another purpose. And the other purpose of the uniform is that we show, the uniform of power at least, that we show that the power is external, it's bestowed, it is a responsibility. It's not internal, it's not intrinsic, it's not necessarily earned. So by putting on the uniform, you're essentially putting on the power. When you take off the uniform or you lose the uniform, you have lost that power. It was never yours altogether. It was bestowed upon you. It is borrowed, but never fully, but never fully owned. Okay, moving right along. The Choshen and the Ephod. This is when we begin to triage. 10.25, we have to enter the triage stage of our shear. The Choshen and the Ephod. But I don't want to triage. But I have to triage. These are the vestments you make. The breastplate, the ephod, the rube, the tunic of box-like knit, turban, sash. One of them is the choshen and the ephod. This is what you have to make, a breastplate and an ephod. What is the ephod? What is the ephod? What does Rashi say? How does he define the ephod? I lost the place. Ephod. I never found it described or elucidated exactly what it looks like. But my heart tells me, says Rashi, that this is the way it's tied, this is what it looks like, and here's an example, those who ride horses, they wear it. Libi Omerli. Am I allowed to Libi Omerli that I don't want to keep Yom Kippur this year? Libi Omerli that I don't have to fast on Tisha this year? Libi Omerli that I could have the cheeseburger? What is Rasha Libi Omerli? I don't know, it doesn't say it anywhere. I don't know exactly what it means, but Libi Omerli, my heart tells me that this is what it means. What do you mean my heart tells me that this is what it means? What do you mean my heart tells me this is what it means? So the answer is, what does it mean, Libi Omerli? Libi Omerli, of Salvechik says, means that when you have an intimate relationship with another, when you have an incredible closeness with another, 
When you are two halves who have become a whole and your heart beats together with another, you can finish their sentence. And even when they're not around and someone says, I wonder what they want, I wonder what they would say, I wonder what they would think, you say, oh, nobody knows them like I know them. We're two halves of a whole. We think alike, we feel alike, our heart beats as one, and I can finish that sentence. I can tell you what they want. When a person has earned that their heart beats with Torah and with Hashem, then you qualify as Libi Omerli. There's a Torah intuition to know the Ratzon Hashem. Rizalvecha gave a hesped for his uncle, for the Brisker Rav, and he talked about the two relationships you could have with Torah. You could have Erisin and Nesuin. You can be engaged to Torah and you can be married to Torah. You know, the engaged couple, depends what community you're from. Some community, the engaged couple knows the other party fairly well. In some community, you're lucky if they still remember how to spell the other person's name. But there's a big difference between how well you know the person, how much you could finish their sentence when you're engaged versus when you're married. And there's an enormous difference. It's always so cute under the chuppah. I do a lot of weddings. The chassan and kal, they think they're in love under the chuppah. It's so adorable that they think that they're in love. It's so adorable that they think that they know what love is. They think they know who they, who they are. You don't know what love is until you've been through challenge and success, till you've celebrated, till you've mourned, till you fought and had to reconcile and work it out, till you've navigated and compromised, till you've lived, you don't know what love is. But then you can finish the other person's sentence. In a healthy relationship, in a beautiful and functional marriage, you can finish the other person's sentence. So the Rav developed this idea that there are those, they're barely dating Torah. There are those who never met Torah. There are those who even engage to Torah. But there are very few who are married to Torah. And he said his uncle was married to Torah. His uncle had an intuition and an instinct. And when his uncle spoke about, this is the Ratzon Hashem, he spoke with authority. And you can't begin to compare someone who has a casual relationship with Torah, who says, I think this is the, the truth, with somebody who lives and sleeps and breathes 24-7 Torah. You can't begin to compare somebody who's married to Torah, somebody who lives Torah. So that whole notion of Libi Omerli, and who's qualified to say Libi Omerli. My heart tells me, we live in a generation, this is true in secular topics, and all the more so it's true and dangerous in the world of Torah. You know, you Google and somebody had an internet connection and a keyboard, so they wrote an article, this is my opinion, or this is the halacha conclusion. And someone else finds that article and says, oh, I follow this halacha. Who's that person? I don't know anything. Are they qualified, competent? I have no idea. Is it peer reviewed, so to say? No clue. Did you ever hear? I don't know who they are, where they, I know nothing. But it says it on the internet, it must be true. Who qualifies as Libi Omerli? Who are our Gedola Yisrael? Who are our Rabbanim? Who are our Poskim? Who are those who are married to Torah? They're not just engaged to Torah, they're not just dating Torah, they didn't just hear once about Torah, but they're married and they breathe and they live Torah. Who are the Libi Omerli? Who are the Libi Omerli? Nachman. Rav Nachman says, V'nasa Aaron Shemos B'nei Yisrael B'choshin Mishpat. Skip to Pasal Chavtes, the same Choshen that we just spoke about. So Rav Nachman says, page 470, Aaron puts on the names of the Jewish people on his breastplate, and he wears it on his heart when he goes into the Kodesh. He wears it on his heart, the names of the Jewish people, when he goes into the Kodesh. Rav Nachman, Likutei Mu'aran, he writes, the reason that people are distant from Hashem, they're down and out, they feel helpless and hopeless, is because they're disconnected from Hashem. When a person feels that they're a creature of, they're a, a consequence of nature, when a person feels it's all up to them, they can feel sad, despondent, down and out. So the way to get close again is to feel a connection to Hashem, is to feel happiness and joy, to know that everything's for a reason, everything's for a purpose, there's meaning and order to the universe. What should a Jew do who feels, I don't have Torah, I don't have tefillah, I don't have anything. Who am I? What merits do I have? What hope do I have? What future do I have? Do you know how far I've fallen? And that's why I feel so down and out and I can't feel any happiness and joy. Such a person who's struggling with this. So that Jew needs to know, don't ever forget where you come from. You're a Jew. Don't ever forget you come from. You're a prince, you're a princess, you're royalty. You're a child of Hashem. And that's what Aaron would wear. He wore on his breastplate the names of the Jewish people. He wore the Jewish people on his heart. That even no matter where you go, the guiding light, the compass that guides you. Aaron wasn't jealous of his brother Moshe. He was happy for Moshe. 
even though Moshe was younger than he. And Moshe wasn't jealous of Aaron that he got to be the Kohen Gadol, even though he wanted that position. He was happy for Aaron that he got to get it. And that's where we find happiness, is when we can be happy for one another, and when we can ride the coattails of one another, and we can see the success of one another, then no matter what we're going through, no matter how we feel, it can lift us, and it can enrich us, and it can propel us. Okay, let's just finish with one last idea. One last idea. All moed. One last idea. Even though we had so many more ideas. But one last idea. Perach of Tes Pasuk Membez. Turn the page. Turn two pages. 474. Last idea. Stay with us. If you're watching online or listening later, I know we're at the end, but stay with us one more. Chavtes Membez. We'll make it worth your while. I'm sorry. Perach of Tes Pasuk Membez. Keep going. Is on page 480. Page 480. We spoke about the Tamid, consistency, constancy, Purim Katan, the Ramah, the, the most important Pasuk. Pasuk Membez, a continual elevation offering for your generations. Pesach Omoid Lifnei Hashem, you bring it to the entrance of the Omoid before Hashem. Why? Why there? Asher Iva'id Lachem Shama. Where I shall set my meeting with you to speak to you there. What's the root of the word Eid? The same root as the word Moed. Moed, every holiday, Moed, Chola Moed, Moed. A Moed is an appointed time. We can have a rendezvous place and a rendezvous in time. And every Moed is a rendezvous in time. It's a Moed. Asher Eid Lachem Shama. I have appointed there to speak to you from there. I have appointed there to speak to you from there. What happened to Uncle Moshe? <coughs> what do I mean, what happened to Uncle Moshe? Who knows what I mean? Thank you. Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is everywhere. Hashem says, no, only there. I made a place for us, that's where we meet, that's where we connect, that's where we talk. That's where we go. That's where we are. What do you mean only there? Arachayim HaKadosh asked that question. Frekti Arachayim HaKadosh. Eizen achitos yeshlon odash shekayim makam kavuash menem edabar kadosh baruchu. Why is that relevant? Why are we being told this here in our parsha That we built it all and made it functional and Hashem said, good, let's meet in our usual meeting place because that's where I talk to you from. So Shmuel Birnbaum, that's Al Roshiv of the Mir in Brooklyn, explained that this is a raya, this is a makar for makam kavua. You have to know that if you want to connect with God, it can't be haphazard. And it's not casual, and you don't stumble upon it, and it's not by chance. It can't be an attitude that we have that right now, and convenient, and comfortable, and where I want, when I want. There's the notion of a makam miyuchad, of a makam kavua, the preparation, designating, elevating, of having a special place, of having a special place, when we have a special place, when we create rituals and ceremonies around special places, then we change our attitude and atmosphere to what we do there. The bedroom should have certain rules and regulations. And the dining room table should have rules and regulations. And having a makam kavua, so that when we enter that space, it's like a uniform is for our body, what the space is for our soul. It changes our attitude, our perspective, our demeanor, and what we're able to achieve and accomplish there. So Hashem says, you're not going to trip upon talking to me. Yes, Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is everywhere. Yes, we do a spodidus in the middle of the forest, and we do a spodidus by the lake, and we do a spodidus. Yes, it's all true. But if you want to achieve holiness and sanctity, you have to designate, and you have to make special, and you have to have a seriousness to it, order and preparation to it. It has to be something which is a, a makom kavua. And we see this in Allah, the Gemara Baruchos Davav tells us, we have to be koveya makom latfilaso, following Avram Avinu. We designate a place to daven. So what is it talking about? Koveya makam utfilaso. So the Russian brachos writes, Koveya makam utfilaso means a makam kavu and shul. My seat, my seat. Now is not the time. What are the halachas? What governs and regulates makam kavu? Can you kick someone else out of the seat? Does the seat mean that seat? Or any four amas around that seat? You draw a circle six feet. And anywhere six feet within that seat, that's still part of your seat. How long are you entitled to your makam kavua? If you're late to shul, 
Minion starts at 9, you get there at 9.22. You're still entitled to your Makam Kavua. But all else being equal, and a seat is available to you, having a general area, well, that's my area. When I get into that space, I'm in my cockpit. I'm in my space. I'm in the central location. That's where it all happens. That's where I make it happen. So the rush does makam kabua. But what I want to share with you, what was very relevant to me, the beginning of Corona in particular, is Rabbeinu Yonah. Rabbeinu Yonah, in his commentary in the back of the Gemara Brachos, says, makam kabua doesn't mean in shul. The whole shul is a makam kabua for tefillah. The whole shul is a place he daven. So it's okay. Shachar sat in the front, Menchai sat in the back. Shabbos you sit in the side. Next week you sit over there. Wherever you find a seat in shul, it's fine. It's all makam kavua because the whole makam is kavua for davening, says Rabbeinu Yonah. So where is it talking about that you need a makam kavua? In your house, in your home. You can't daven sometimes at this seat, sometimes the kitchen table, sometimes the dining room table, sometimes the recliner, sometimes while doing the dishes, sometimes while in the backyard, sometimes the, says the rush, the makam kavua, kavua Rabbeinu Yonah rather, says Rabbeinu Yonah, the makam kavua is in shul, is in home. That's where you need to establish a makam kavua. The whole shul is a makam kavua. So how do we pass? Again, the Shachanar quotes the rush. The makam kavua is a din in shul, not the home. However, it's brought down by many that we apply it to the home as well. And it applies both to men and I think even more to women who more often are davening at home and not in shul. But the idea that when we create a kvius, a consistency, which is really the theme of our parsha, when we create consistency and seriousness, then we achieve higher and more lofty things, then we're able to transform ourselves and our attitude. So Kodesh Baruch Hu says, it's in our regular meeting place. Don't change our location. Don't adjust. Yes, you can talk to me anywhere. And yes, I'm listening everywhere. And yes, I talk to you everywhere. But if you really want to grow, you really want to elevate, you have to go to our usual place. So it's important to have a usual place. And I think within our homes, it's very important, very important. Whether you have a stender in your house, or you have a corner in the house, or you have where you keep the sedurim in your house, a bookcase in the house. Where is that place that when you're there, everyone else in the home knows, don't talk to mommy. Don't talk to Abba right now. They're davening. They're going, that's their shul inside the house. Rabbi Yonah uses that kind of lashon. You create a shul inside your house, not a breakaway from the shul, <laughs> and not an alternative to the shul, but it means in extenuating circumstances, that you create that within the home, within the house itself. We left out a lot more, but Baruch Hashem will read Parshas again next year. Have a fantastic day. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay holy.